Yeah, we're live. So I want to open the talk this afternoon with a poem. There's a poem from uh, Mary Oliver called Spring. I know it's summer, but it speaks to, uh, well, you'll see many things. She writes, Somewhere, a black bear has just risen from sleep and is staring down the mountain all night in the brisk and shallow restlessness of early spring. I think of her, her black fists flicking the gravel, her tongue like a red fire touching the grass, the cold water. There is only one question, how to love this world. I think of her rising like a black and leafy hedge to sharpen her claws against the silence of the trees. Whatever else my life is with its poems and its music and its glass cities, it is also this dazzling darkness coming down the mountain, breathing and tasting. All day I think of her, her white teeth, her wordlessness, her perfect love. Yesterday, Andrea opened her talk, inviting us to reflect on not just how to meditate, but why we're here, why we come to practice. (laughs) Leave it to Mary Oliver to sum it up. Hmm? I think of her her black fists flicking the gravel, her tongue like a red fire touching the grass, the cold water. There is only one question, how to love this world. It's not so easy. We know this. It's hard enough just to love ourselves. It brought for me the memory of myself at age uh, 11, 
when I was diagnosed with a type 1 diabetes, a chronic illness I've lived with for many decades, and how that diagnosis ignited a kind of fierce and pernicious self-hatred, a hatred toward myself, toward my body, an anger toward a lot of people and toward the world. And I think that many of us bring to our practice various pain, whether it's a sense of betrayal of our bodies to ourselves, to each other, the various ways we've been hurt, disappointed, harmed by life. This is the truth of dukkha. It is the first noble truth that there is suffering, dissatisfactoriness, dis-ease in our life. It doesn't have to be loud or acute or, you know, it doesn't have to be a kind of screaming suffering. One of my favorite translations of dukkha is a, <laughs> a wheel out of round. Dukkha, dukkha. We can have a sense of just, you know, it's pretty good, but whatever the it is, me, you, them, the world, not quite right. This is dukkha. And yet, I hear when I have the privilege of sitting in interviews and meetings with you, and I certainly know from my own experience that <laughs> there's some way in which we say something like, I know that that's what he said, he being the Buddha, that there is suffering in life, but me? This? Really? Somehow the immediacy of the experience of the kinds of difficulties we face seem different from <laughs> the teaching on a page, the teaching in a book, the teaching spoken from the front of the room, and yet that's what we're here for to see and see through our suffering, to deeply learn to be with what's here. And so the question for all of us is, how do we cultivate the capacity to meet the wholeness, the fullness, the no-part-left-outness of our life with love? I think, at least in uh, the United States, in, we in a lot of Western culture, certainly in Northern California, I think we're kind of mixed up about love. Often kind of write off love as being something, I don't know, pink and fluffy, you know, or sentimental, or like a Hallmark card, you know, with little hearts and butterflies. 
And one of the things I appreciate so much about this poem is that it can help us begin to reframe and understand that love is something big and strong and worthy and potent and fierce, like a big black bear. So I want to share some stories with you that I hope will help uh, point to some of the ways that we can learn to practice, learn to meet our suffering, whether the suffering is big or small, loud or quiet, and whatever flavor, shape, size, color it comes in for you, uh, how we can meet what arises with this quality of love. We're here practicing in this way in large part because of years and years of stories that have been handed down. And in particular, we lean into the story of the life of the Buddha. And I think there is a historical story of the Buddha, a young prince who grew up in northern India in the Shakya clan, something like 2,600 years ago. But there's also the mythological story of the Buddha, the Buddha as the archetype, as the potential for awakening that we can also lean into, or as I spoke about the first night, kind of take refuge in. And the thing about the young prince is that he uh, woke up. (laughs) What does that mean? I think we're about as confused about waking up as we are about love. It's hard to get our minds around something so vast. (laughs) There's a story about uh, the Buddha just after his awakening. And he's walking down the road, looking very kind of radiant and glowy, you know. (laughs) Maybe you've seen someone coming off a retreat in that kind of radiant glowiness, you know. Maybe you will be someone coming off retreat (laughs) in that kind of radiant glowiness and someone will go, what is that? I'd like some of that. Anyhow, the Buddha was walking down the path and he ran into someone, a traveler on the path, and the traveler thought, whoa, you know, check this guy out. Like, I want some of that. And he said, are you a deva? And the Buddha said, no. Are you like from some other heaven realm? No. Are you some kind of God? No. What are you? The Buddha said, I am awake. I warn us all to imagine that we know what that means. Hmm? (laughs) The 
Zen teacher, Zen master, really, Suzuki Roshi, who uh, wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, is uh, reputed to have said something like, enlightenment is not an experience. Now, come on. Everything for us is an experience. So what could that possibly mean? (laughs) I offer that for you to chew on because there's a way in which we want to know, we want to understand, we want to take whatever it is and put it in a box so we've got it. And maybe we could tie it with a bow and if we're really good, we could like market it and sell it, make a lot of money. At least if we're, you know, in tune with the culture these days. (laughs) So to put in the context, everything else I say in the context of understanding that there is a great uh, mystery here and anything I say is partial. But the key piece in here is that the Buddha is not a god. That waking up is not about becoming some superhuman version of yourself, which is, I think, very close to what many of us imagine. Certainly was true for me, you know? I want to be fixed, I want to be cured, I want to be healed, I want to be something other than this. So we try doing that in all kinds of worldly ways and then at some point we get desperate enough we come try it out in spiritual practice. Maybe now, if I meditate enough, I'll become, yeah. But this is not what the Buddha said. He said, I'm awake. The Buddha was a human being who understood not just cognitively, but in a very deep way, understood suffering. Suffering is what we wake up to. They're not separate. It's not like, oh, there's all this suffering over here, and then there's waking up over here, and I want to get from here to here. That's how we move through most of our life. Like, I'd like, I'm over here, and I'd like to be there. No, it's like this. And here we are in the mess, (laughs) waking up and falling apart, waking up and falling apart, seeing our suffering as closely as we can. We don't tell you this before you sign up for the retreat. (laughs) Yeah. So there's another story about the Buddha, about the Buddha's awakening. It's not... um, It's not a particularly well-known story, but it's also in the spirit of being a kind of uh, mythological uh, way of understanding his waking up. And it's sometimes referred to as the three watches of the night. And the three watches of the night describe sort of three key insights that the Buddha, or he wasn't even yet the Buddha, but the in the process of transformation becoming the Buddha had on the night of his awakening. And I um, invite you to consider the single night of awakening as a metaphor, right? So when we're working in mythic time, this could be a night and it could be a whole lifetime. So don't try to do it all tonight. But it, it's, it's useful, I think, to consider that there are these different dimensions of seeing clearly, of insight, that we too can uh, incrementally begin to realize 
In other words, to make real in our own minds, hearts, bodies, lives. So the first watch of the night, the uh, Buddha sees (laughs) uh, many, many lifetimes of his own uh, unfolding karma. In other words, he sees, you don't have to believe in many lifetimes to get something from this story. He sees how it is that karma, which means action, causes suffering. That as he engages in reactive, karmic, habitual activity of mind, of heart, of body, of speech, that the wheel of samsara turns that there's this ongoingness of the wheel of suffering that uh, (laughs) spins and gains momentum. And he saw, another way to say this is he saw his own suffering clearly. And he saw it not just uh, right now, but he saw how it had unfolded. You could consider for yourself over many lifetimes or even just you know, over a day or a week or however long you've been alive, that there's this cyclic process of reactivity, of non-clarity that causes us to be caught in this wheel. So he saw that clearly. He had insight, we might say, into his, into a level of kind of personal clarity understanding about his personal suffering. Now in the second watch of the night, basically he sees exactly the same thing, but now they say his wisdom eye opens wider and he sees that this same cycle of suffering that he'd seen so clearly for himself is also true of all other beings. He sees how all beings are caught in this cycle of suffering. I think in some way that this is a movement from seeing our own to uh, and having insight about our own suffering to really in a way cracking open the heart of compassion. We begin to see, oh, just in the same way that I struggle and suffer, the same is true for all beings. And he's able to see across all time and place all beings suffering in this way. That's the second watch of the night. And the third watch of the night, he, we might think of, he's settled down enough, he's quiet enough, his quality of attention and awareness is still and subtle and refined enough that he's able to watch how suffering happens in a moment of experience. He sees the whole process unfold. This is sometimes referred to as the teaching of Patika Samupada of the chain of interdependent arising. So he sees that process. And I'm not going to give you a talk. You'll be glad to hear about that 12-fold chain. But I will name three parts of it that are really pivotal in seeing how suffering happens and also seeing how suffering unhappens. And we've been speaking about these already. 
And those three steps in the chain are Vedana, which is the nature of every moment of experience has a flavor, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That there's a coloring, that there's a shade of experience that we receive and then we react. The reaction is what's called tanha. Tanha is usually uh, grasping, you know, clinging, not grasping or a thirst, right? But really it means both the reaching for what's pleasant and the pushing away what's what's unpleasant. That tanha is our basic reactivity. And I think it's really an interesting thing to see. You come on a retreat and it's going to be nice and quiet and everything's going to still. And then you know, you see there's this constant reverb, even in the stillness, wanting, not wanting, wanting, not wanting, grasping, aversion. We see it and we see it clearly. I'm sorry to let you know that this is good, (laughs) that you see it so clearly, right? And you can begin to see it even in more and more subtle ways, this tanha. And out of tanha comes what's called the upadanas. And there are the various ways that we grasp and cling. So we have flavor of experience that causes this kind of very fundamental reactivity in the heart-mind. And out of that reactivity comes, somebody said it in an interview today as, Basically, there are ways we're trying to control things. I think of the upadanas as we're kind of trying to freeze frame our experience. There's four of them. There's the clinging to sensory experience. There's the clinging to our familiar habits and patterns. There's the clinging to our views and opinions. (laughs) That one's tough, isn't it? Anybody notice any views and opinions today? (laughs) Wow, they're in there deep. And they just get subtler and subtler, right? And we cling to our sense of self. That sense of I, me, mine. All this suffering, it sounds fine when it's on the page and the Buddha is talking about it, but what about when it's happening to me? Now, we've got a problem, (laughs) right? So it's in this process that we get all tangled up. That one of the metaphors I like to use for this is that we, um, we go from being in the fullness and dynamism and aliveness of our life into like, where we tighten around our experience and try to put it in a box so we can hold on to it. Even negative experience, because now we've got it. And if we can keep it in the box, maybe like that. So there's a term in the Theravadan tradition that is a descriptor of awakening called entering the stream. And really, I think of it as having to do with having a deep enough insight into our suffering, into how things are, that we begin to align ourselves, or I would say unalign ourselves, with our karmic, habitual patterning. And we begin to realign ourselves with something more like freedom. We start to have, we're not caught and completely entangled in the ways we have always thought and spoken and acted. 
And I've always thought that the term would be better framed as not entering the stream, but becoming the stream. Because really, that's a beautiful descriptor of what's happening, is that that freeze frame, that frozenness, that tightening down that we (laughs) are running around like crazy people trying to impose on life, starts to release. I sometimes describe it as, um, you know, as we move through life without practice, without attending to what's happening and paying attention to our suffering, we, this aliveness and fluidity of our life gets packaged into all of us in our little ice cube trays. So we're all like in our little ice cube tray, yeah? And, you know, it's okay. It's kind of safe, right? And then at some point we have this feeling like, you know, it's kind of cold in here. And, and <clears throat> like a little tight, like, man, it's a little hard to breathe. And maybe we try some stuff, you know, we paint the walls of our ice cube tray or we put in some, whatever those things are called, some extra windows or some nice fluffy curtains. You know, we try to spruce it up. <laughs> And then, nope, still cold in here. And I like the metaphor because it becomes very clear that there's only one way out, right? The only way from the ice cube tray to the stream is you have to melt. (sighs) Melt is short code for relax, receive, and especially allow. There's a, uh, a line in a book that I love that speaks to this. It's called The Hungry Road. It's a book by a Nigerian author named Ben Okri. And the book opens like this. He says, in the beginning, there was a river. And then the river was paved over and became a road. And soon the road spread out and covered everything. But because the road was really a river, it was always hungry. We know somewhere in us that we're not a road, (laughs) that we're not an ice cube, that we too are made of water. And we want to be alive. We want to flow. We want to be free. And so in order to do that, we have to see the ways we've boxed ourselves. We have to see the little cube we've placed ourselves in. We have to see how much cement (laughs) has been laid down in our lives. Some uh, years, maybe eight, ten years after I was diagnosed, I had uh, a dream that 
uh, helped me see how much I was suffering and in many ways was very pivotal in uh, having me land <laughs> at the door of San Francisco Zen Center. So in the dream, I was asleep on my bed. And as I was sleeping, a rat ran across my face. And the sleeping person, who was me in the dream, was disgusted by this scritchy little feet. And I reached up as the rat ran across my face and I grabbed the rat around the belly with one hand. And with the other hand, I took, remember this is dreams like poems and stories of the Buddha are metaphoric, right? So on the other hand, I take an insulin syringe <laughs> and I begin impaling the rat. This is my relationship to my disease, right? And I wake up with this feeling of blood on my hands, right? And it shook me to my core because I saw in a way that I couldn't see so clearly how unkind, it's an under, understatement, right? I was being to myself. My relationship to myself, my illness, my body, my being was one that was violent and unkind. So some, some years later, I be, had been practicing for a while and uh, I was living at the Zen Center and I had an opportunity to go see this uh, Tibetan healer. Uh, he was a guy who was both a monk and also a doctor, Tibetan medicine. And uh, although I had been practicing for some time, I still had in me this deep wish to be I think some of you will relate to this, but I, w I wanted to be fixed. I wanted to be cured. I want, you get the feeling. I wanted to be somebody else, basically, right? So I go see this guy, and is uh, this small man, beautiful face, full lips, very delicate person. And I walk in and sit down, and he doesn't speak English, he has a translator with him. And it was one of the first experiences I've had of someone not just looking at me, but like looking right through me. And I remember the feeling in my stomach, you know, it was like, oh my God, this guy's seeing me. Right? And he didn't say anything, he just looked. And he walked over and he pressed on my fingernails. And he looked in my eyes and he asked me to stick out my tongue. And he walked around me sitting in the chair. Then he went back to his seat. He looked at me again. And then he started to speak. And uh, he said a little bit. And then his, tra <laughs> his translator said, Rinpoche says that the thing you need to do, and then he paused. And I was like, and then Rinpoche spoke again a little bit and the translator said, Rinpoche says that the most important thing for you is, <laughs> come on, you know, like give me the, right? You could imagine this is like a lifetime it felt like of wanting the answer and here it is, this guy's gonna give it to me third time. Rinpoche says that the single most important thing for you 
is to love yourself completely. I was so disappointed. <laughs> what? That's how I felt. Like, this guy does not understand. I am a sick person. I have a disease. I need help. Like, I really wanted him to tell me to eat more broccoli, <laughs> right? Which he did not. And I remember that, like, confusion and disappointment and frustration. But, of course, here it is, you know, almost 30 years later, and I'm sharing the story with you. He was pointing me to something that I knew I didn't know how to do. But I also knew that he was saying something true. About two years ago, I had another dream. It was a different dream. In this dream, I'm walking in the countryside. There's beautiful green fields. And I see this house with a white picket fence in the distance. And I stroll along. And I see on the porch of the house is a woman. And she beckons me. She summons me to come to the house. And I come up to the porch and everything is silent there's no words exchanged but she turns and walks in and it's clear that I'm supposed to follow her and I follow her into the house into this beautiful you know wooden farmhouse and this big sunny kitchen and in the middle of the floor of her kitchen there's this <laughs> huge basket full of puppies and it's clear to me in the dream that I'm supposed to pick, you know, my puppy. And I go over to the basket and I crouch down and all these little furry guys, you know, and so cute. And then I see my puppy. And I pick up the dog. Oh, it's so cute, right? Little fluff ball. And I raise the dog up. This is a dream, remember? And I'm looking at the puppy and the puppy is looking at me and I'm so happy. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the puppy snarls, and I see its fangs. And in the dream, uh, you know, I feel afraid. And there's some kind of wisdom that comes through. And it says, the voice of wisdom says, oh, the puppy is afraid. Oh, the puppy is afraid, and I know what to do. And I say to myself, hold the puppy, hold the puppy, hold the puppy. This is our practice, this be with, be with. I don't do anything, just be with. And the fangs recede, and the puppy turns back into a fluffy little puppy. And as I continue to be with, be with, the puppy transforms and becomes a little child that I hold to my chest. And I wake up from the dream. This is a kind of dramatic uh, description of how we can shift our relationship over time with our experience. How we can learn to have 
the courage and the stability and the steadiness and the trust to be with, be with what arises. Because in the being with, in the, in the dream image of the puppy and the baby, the puppy itself transforms. But actually what happens is that we learn how to relate to our experience in a different way. This is a kind of poetic, uh, imaginal dream version of what it is we're doing here. These images are meant to kind of inspire that. I'll share another story that is a kind of another way to look at or another way in to understand what we're up to. As we practice being mindful, being present and open, relaxed, receptive, allowing with our experience moment by moment. We are in some ways listening. We're receiving, as Andrew was saying about the recepting, receiving is like being a radio, we're receiving that. And when I say, when we're listening to our experience, I don't mean just listening with the ears. We're listening with the whole of ourselves. And there's a story that I heard some years ago that um, has a kind of pith and beautiful uh, description of this. And the story is of the young boy, uh, uh, George Washington Carver. Some of you may know about him. He was a botanist and um, a social revolutionary. <laughs> he was, he's attributed with having come up with like 300 and something uh, uses for the peanut. And he introduced uh, crop rotation to the farmers in the South. And little George was born in the South to slave parents. And as his parents worked in the fields, he was a little bit of a sickly child. And so they would leave him at home. And he was from when he was a little boy, he had this amazing capacity with plants. <laughs> I found a book, it's called The Little Plant Doctor, which is the story of little George Washington Carver. So this capacity that he, he grew into as an adult uh, began for him as a little person, and in fact grew out of some of his uh, struggles, his inability to have the strength to go into the fields and work. And so it's, the story is that he set up a, a plant hospital behind his little cabin, and that all of the women in particular in his community would bring little George their ailing houseplants, or plants, and he would bring them to the hospital and heal them. <laughs> And so the story goes that one day one of the women came to collect her plant from little George. But she said, tell me, what is your secret? How is it that you're able to heal all of these plants? And little George said to her with the wisdom of a wise Zen master, he said, if you listen to things, 
If you listen to things and love them, they will reveal themselves to you. This is such a beautiful description of what we're up to. This is this quality that we're engaging in being with, being with, and being with includes, I don't wanna be with this. Being with includes our resistance and our denial and our ah, tantrums, whatever it is for you, however that shows up. Yes, can you be with that too? When we are with these particularly difficult or ailing or troubled parts of ourselves, if we're able to be with, to listen to them with love, to meet them with kind of kindness and curiosity, they, it's what transformation means. Something is revealed. Something is able to come forth that we couldn't see before, that we didn't know before. This is insight. The situation is the same, but we see it in a new way. <laughs> in case you're wondering, this is the work of a lifetime. Maybe, as is suggested in the, you know, Buddha's first watch of the night and second watch of the night, many, many lifetimes. Because the world itself will continuously reveal itself. So we come thinking, oh, I want to get there and be done, check. No, this is a different kind of process. This is a kind of kairos opening of time in which we can fully enter and meet what's there. And as we develop our capacity to meet what's there, we are gifted with revelation. More and more is revealed. We realize more and more of what is possible. There's a term in the Zen tradition called Robai Shin. Robai Shin means grand motherly mind. A few of you have maybe heard me tell this story before. Uh, grand motherly mind is that kind of kind mind that we can meet, a loving mind that we meet our experience with. And when I was a little girl, I had a lot of people around me who, frankly, didn't listen very well. <laughs> but thankfully for me, I had my grandma Helen. And my grandma Helen was uh, <laughs> a short, feisty, wrinkled little Jewish lady from Chicago. And she would get to our house in California and drop her bags and peel off her gloves and, uh, you know, lean over to me with her, put her wrinkled face right up to my face and she'd pinch my cheek and she'd say, Bubala, new Bubala, how are you? And then she would say, tell me everything. This is grandmotherly mind. This is the mind in which we look to listen with love, in which we're willing to receive everything. And the quieter we get, the more receptive we become, the more refined our attention gets, the more and more is revealed. And then we, like the Buddha, 
can begin to see clearly the whole trajectory of our own suffering, of others' suffering, of how it is that suffering comes into being and how it is that we can begin to untangle the tangle, the karmic habitual freeze-framed, ice-cubed ways that we live in the world. There's something really wonderful about as we practice this for ourselves, this capacity to be with, that it begins to leak out, that we discover that how we can be with others is also transformed. (laughs) Mary Oliver has another poem I'll share. She uh, is a dog lover. She has a whole book of poems about dogs. And uh, this is a short poem that she wrote called Little Dog's Rhapsody in the Night. And it describes in a way that loving listening in a more interactive form. She says, he puts his cheek against mine and makes small expressive sounds. And when I'm awake, and when I'm awake or awake enough, he turns upside down, his forepaws in the air, his his eyes dark and fervent. (laughs) This is like, if you can meet your experience with that kind of grandmotherly, kind, interested mind, it will roll over and show you its belly. (laughs) Hello. He turns upside down, his forepaws in the air, and his eyes dark and fervent. Tell me you love me, he says. Tell me again. Could there be a sweeter arrangement over and over, he gets to ask, I get to tell. Can we meet our little fluffy dog rolling over, asking for love, right? All of those moments of, "Ah, it looks so scary and frightening and this is all these parts of us wanting their belly rubbed, wanting to be loved. And you can't just tell them once, right? I love that. Tell me you love me, he says. Tell me again. We have to repeat, repeat, repeat. We soak in this. Some of you know that about eight months ago, I got a little dog. (laughs) And my little dog didn't come from a big basket in some happy house in dream world. My little dog (laughs) came from uh, a mall in Modesto. (laughs) This was a little rescue dog. And uh, I drove three hours to get him. And he was completely 
freaked out. And uh, I drove home three hours cut with completely no idea what I had just gotten into with this little dog in my car who threw up all the way home. <laughs> Tell me you love me, he says. <laughs> Tell me again. So one day, as it was been quite a journey of, you know, learning for him and me. And uh, one day, early on, he, were, he got underfoot when I was in the hallway and I stepped on him by accident. And he yelped. And I said, oh, and I crouched down to look at him, you know, sort of at his level. And he backed up down the hallway a few steps and he came running at me and he went bang and he headbutted me. <laughs> and, it, and then he backed up again and he did it an, a second time, bang, headbutt, wow, who would have thought? And then the third time he backed up and he ran and he came, you know, charging at me with his head. And the third time I kind of caught him in my arms. And I was, you know, just held him. And I wept and wept. Because there it was, this poor little guy who had been traumatized in some way, who just said, tell me you love me. Tell me again. This is another version of it takes more than once, you know? And I've watched over eight months now, my little guy, is, his name's Grover. He's calmed way down, but he still gets really freaked out sometimes, you know? And I have to find a way to bring my grandmotherly mind to meet this frightened little person. I think of him as a little person <laughs> in my life. So what it means to listen with love, what it means to meet our suffering, our difficulties with love, is our willingness to be with, to receive what comes. And all of that Andrea was saying yesterday, it takes enormous trust. It also takes courage. It takes steadfastness. It takes gentleness. It takes kindness. It takes a quality of fierceness, of stability. All of these things are what we are cultivating here as we sit. <laughs> with our achy knees and our boredom and our irritated minds and our petty thoughts and our moments of, oh, wow, that was nice. Whatever array of those things are happening for you. And like the Buddha, as we are willing to sit and be present with our delusion, with our confusion, with our, the fullness of our karmic unfolding, something happens. Something begins to shift and change. And it doesn't mean 
as I imagined, that I could go and get a cure and now I'm not diabetic anymore. And it doesn't even mean that I like it. I don't. I would give it away in a heartbeat. Sometimes I hate it, hate, but I don't hate myself, right? So the more and more that we can cultivate this capacity to be with those difficulties without imagining that what we're really trying to do is get rid of them, <laughs> can get very sneaky. The ways in which, yeah, okay, I'll be kind if, if it doesn't work that way. Something else happens. Something so much more wonderful happens, which is that we don't become someone else. <laughs> we become ourselves. And we find this capacity to meet and be present with this, with this, over and over. So let's sit for a few minutes. Somewhere, a black bear has just risen from sleep and is staring down the mountain. All night, in the brisk and shallow restlessness of early spring, I think of her, her black fists flicking the gravel, her tongue like a red fire touching the grass, the cold water. There is only one question. There is only one question. How to love this world? I think of her rising like a black and leafy hedge to sharpen her claws against the silence of the trees. Whatever else my life is, with its poems and its music and its glass cities, it is also this dazzling darkness coming down the mountain breathing and tasting. All day I think of her, her white teeth, her wordlessness, her perfect love. 